And as I was trying to think through what psalm would be good for us to look at for the theme of trust, I was drawn to Psalm 88 for a couple of reasons that I'll mention in a minute. I could have done other psalms like Psalm 142. It's a good example where we can see the patterns that we've been seeing of how to lament, where we turn towards God in faith and we bring our complaints to him and our heart is clarified and we we ask him what we want him to do for us and then we're led ultimately to trust in his promises and his character. I think that would have been helpful but I think it also could have posed a potential danger that I want to avoid and that's the danger of viewing lament merely as a formula four steps to a happier life. Four steps to deal with your grief. Four steps to turn your sorrow into joy. Four four steps to make you not feel the pain anymore. And I think that's a way we can misunderstand how lament works. We tend to think that responding to God works quickly because we can take something like the story of Joseph and we can read it in a matter of a half an hour. Decades of history in a half an hour makes us think that, oh, everything just neatly wraps up, right? We're led to think that as we see TV shows these days where there's a, there's a conflict and then it's all taken care of in a half an hour. And that's just not the way songs of sorrow work. That's not the way that lament works. What we can end up thinking, though, when we read our Bibles and we say, man, it worked for them. Joseph was in the pit of despair And then he's in Potiphar's house. And then he's in prison. But then he's raised up to be at the right hand of Pharaoh. God, why doesn't it work that way for me? We can tend to begin to think that there's the Bible. And then there's reality. And that the Bible doesn't really describe reality. And that's why I'm drawn to Psalm 88. Because in this psalm, the Bible describes reality. Reality of deep despair, deep darkness, unrelenting depression. And I think it's important for us to see this as we think about the theme of trust. Because sometimes the reality is, no matter how much you lament and go through these four steps and try to, try to pray to God in this way, sometimes the darkness doesn't lift. And I don't want you and me to be left without help. When that happens. And I think this psalm has great help for us. So I want us to consider. How do we learn to trust. When the darkness doesn't lift. We're going to do it through this psalm. But before we do. I want to look. At the life of William Coper. A man who the darkness did not lift. His entire life. He was born in 1731. Shortly after his sixth birthday. His mom died, and his dad sent him to a boarding school where he was relentlessly bullied the whole time. In the moment of his greatest need, his dad sent him off, and then he felt like all of my companions have shunned me. And he experienced this throughout his early adult life, severe mental breakdowns leading to three suicide attempts. He was providentially hindered from committing suicide. God saved his life. But the darkness didn't lift. 
At the age of 32, he was going to be appointed to an important government position, and he just couldn't take it. He had a complete mental breakdown, was committed to St. Album's insane asylum. It was in the insane asylum where William Cowper met Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, a faithful Christian who pointed him to the hope of Christ. During his time in the insane asylum, he found a Bible and read the story of Lazarus and was blown away by a God who would show such mercy and kindness. Later, he read Romans 3.25 and he instantly was drawn to Christ and became a follower of Jesus. He describes it this way. He says, immediately I received the strength to believe it and the full beams of the son of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. Praise God, what joy. Angels rejoicing in heaven and a heart filled with the light of the righteousness of God. This did not end William Coper's despair, however. He continued throughout the rest of his life to struggle with deep darkness. He got out of the insane asylum a couple years later. But in 1773, he had what he described as a fatal dream. He dreamt, and in his dream, it was something to the effect of, he describes it as a voice saying, it is all over with you, you are lost. He was struggling with deep guilt over his suicide attempts, particularly. And he heard this voice that told him, it's all over with you, you are lost. That dream haunted him for the rest of his life. And 11 years later, he wrote in a letter to a dear friend this. He said, loaded as my life is with despair, I have no such comfort as would result from a supposed probability of better things to come where it once ended. You will tell me that this cold gloom will be succeeded by a cheerful spring and endeavor to encourage me to hope for a spiritual change resembling it. But it will be a lost labor. Nature revives again, but a soul once slain lives no more. My friends, I now expect that I shall see yet again. They think it necessary to the existence of divine truth, that he who once had possession of it should never finally lose it. I admit the solidity of this reasoning in every case but my own. And why not in my own? I forestall the answer, God's ways are mysterious, and he giveth no account of his matters. An answer that would serve my purpose as well as theirs that use it. There is a mystery in my destruction, and in time it shall be explained. In other words, what he was saying in writing this letter, he was saying that I know that we believe things like the perseverance of the saints, that those who once belonged to Jesus still belong to Jesus. And he even said, I believe that's true. But not for me. Not for me, because I dreamed it is all over with you. You are lost. This is the same man that wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood. One of the most beautiful hymns in the English language. He wrote it as a poem, and it goes like this There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. 
to all the ransomed church of God, be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. How could Coper write, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die, and yet also write these disheartening words filled with hopelessness and despair. There is no happy ending to the story of William Coper. In 1786, he met his fourth depressive episode and tried to commit suicide again, was unsuccessful again, thank the Lord. And yet the darkness did not lift. One year before his death, he wrote his last poem. It's a poem called The Castaway. And in this poem, he compares himself to a man whose story he read about, a man who was swept off of a ship in a storm and had to watch as the ship sailed away. And he read the account of these sailors who watched their friend, helpless and hopeless, floating in the ocean with nothing they could do for him. He wrote this poem and he ended it with this stanza. No voice divine the storm allayed. No light propitious shone. When snatched from all effectual aid, we perished each alone. But I, beneath a rougher sea, and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. In other words, William Culper saw himself and his own life, the entire story of his life, as worse off than this sailor who was swept away with no hope and died. Whelmed in deeper gulfs than he, he said. He died a year later with no evidence that the darkness ever lifted. How could he write words of such hope and also feel such despair? All his life, the darkness did not lift. How should we think of that? How could he feel that way? Our world would respond that Coper just dealt with severe chronic clinical depression. And I want to say a word about that because I think it's important for us to recognize we are indeed, we are indeed embodied souls. And so there is indeed measurable brain chemistry deficiencies and differences that lead to mood changes. In other words, you are actually a physical person and there may be a physical cause behind chronic darkness. Medication can help that. Learning coping skills can help that. The problem is we are not only, we are not only embodied souls. We are also in souled bodies. There is a reality that no amount of medication or therapy would ever cure Coper's darkness. There is a reality that those of us who experience a lingering spiritual depression require a spiritual remedy. A remedy of the soul. Pastors are called physicians of the soul for that very reason. I don't come here to bring you medication and therapy. I come here to bring you the word of God. Which is what is going to help your soul and mine as we think about how to deal with something like this. So friends, that's what we're going to have our eye on today. Is this kind of deep, unrelenting darkness and despair. What we might call spiritual depression. And we're going to ask... What does lament look like when experiencing this? What does lament look like when we don't experience the darkness lifting? How do we learn to trust 
and God's promises in the midst of it. Remember, lament is a prayer offered in pain that leads to trust in God's promises. What does it look like to trust in those promises when the darkness doesn't lift? I have two goals behind this. I want to offer help and hope for those of you that are despairing in this way. I know there are people in this room who are experiencing the darkness of spiritual depression and it won't lift. I want to offer you hope. I think Psalm 88 has great hope for us. And I want to offer help for friends of the despairing. We are the body of Christ together. And so when one of us suffers, all of us suffer. And we are called to help one another when the darkness won't lift. And so I want to offer help for that. And I think Psalm 88 helps us do that. We're going to look inward first and we're going to see four realities that lead to a conclusion from Psalm 88. And then we're going to look upward and we're going to see one overarching reality that offers comfort, that offers help. And then we're going to look outward at one another and say, how can we help each other in light of these realities? So first, let's look inward at these four realities we see in Psalm 88. The first thing we notice, Psalm 88 is about this man, Heman. I didn't have Malachi read the superscript. That's okay, but if you have it in your Bible, which you should, it is before verse 1, and at the end of it, it says, A masculine of Heman, the Ezraite. This man, Heman, is describing his experience of the darkness not lifting. And the first thing we see about it is that Heman is in a deep despair. This is the first reality we grapple with. Heman is in a deep despair. Rome, uh, look, at, uh, look at verses 1 through 5. He says, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles. And my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more for they are cut off from your hand. Heman is in a deep despair. He is buried underneath his depression. He says he's like the slain who lie in the grave. He's saying that he's like one of the people that was buried in a mass grave after a massive battle. Except he's still alive. But he looks around and all he sees are corpses. And all he feels is the crushing weight of the grave. He is a man who has no strength left. The word there used for man is a kind of a unique one that talks about a strong man. I think it's funny that his name is Heman. It reminds me of Heman. But he is like a strong man who has no strength left. He is drained, sapped, gone. This deep darkness has taken it all from him. The first reality we grapple with is that Heman is in deep despair. The second reality we grapple with is that not only is he in deep despair, but God himself put him there. God himself put him there. Look at verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. 
Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have put me in the depths of the pit, he says. Notice verse 4, I am counted as those who go down to the pit. Why? Because God has put him there. The reality is that Heman is being treated by God, at least he feels this way, like being treated as an enemy. And he doesn't understand why. Why would God put him in a pit so that he feels like he is being buried under corpses and has no strength? We don't know. But he does know for certain that God has put him there. He is in deep despair, reality number one. God has put him there, reality number two. Reality number three we see is that Heman's despair has led to deep disorientation. Deep disorientation. Look at verse 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? He knows that he is in the pit and he knows that God has put him there, but he doesn't know why. And this leads to all of this questioning. I think his disorientation is evident as well in just the overall structure of this psalm. Notice this psalm isn't nice and neat. Step A, step B, step C, step D, right? This, this psalm has a repetitive rhythm to it. There's a crying out to God. And then there's a recognition that he's in deep despair. And then there's another crying out to God. And a recognition that he's in despair and questions about that. And then there's another crying out to God. And yet still the darkness does not lift. He is deeply disoriented. Reality number three. And reality number four, and probably the most important of these ones, is that despite Heman's pleading, the darkness does not lift. Despite his pleading, the darkness does not lift. Look at verse 13. The third time he comes to the Lord, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. There is no relief offered in this psalm. There's no happy ending. Another way to translate that last verse is that darkness has become my friend. Darkness has become my only friend. He is alone, abandoned, forsaken. Feels forsaken by God. And he's pleading with him and yet the darkness is not lifted. What these realities lead us to is a very, very important conclusion. A very important conclusion. And that is that prolonged 
and painful spiritual depression is a real possibility for the people of God. Prolonged and painful spiritual depression is a real possibility for the people of God. This is in God's word, I believe, to show us that this is not Heman the pagan who is rejecting God. This is Heman the Ezrathite, a faithful man of God, who has been put in this pit somehow for some reason, providentially by God. And he is experiencing prolonged and painful darkness, prolonged and painful spiritual depression. This conclusion is important because it tells us if you're experiencing this kind of darkness, you're not alone. You're not alone and you're not somehow a defective Christian. That's really important for you to hear. If you're experiencing this kind of darkness, you're not alone and you're not a defective Christian because this kind of darkness can be experienced by the people of God. That's the good news. The bad news is that this darkness may be prolonged and painful. The bad news is that God himself may place you in the pit. The way we experience this often in our lives as Christians is God removing all subjective sense of his care for you. Some people talk about it as losing their assurance of salvation. God removing all subjective sense of his care for you. I think we hear that a little bit in William Coper's words when he says, I believe in the perseverance of the saints, but not for me. Many saints throughout history have struggled to find any sense in themselves that God cares for them. To feel that God is near. Because this is a real possibility for the people of God, you may in fact experience this. And I'm sorry because it is so painful. It brings deep loneliness and isolation because you feel all alone. The other thing this reality means, the other conclusion from this reality, that prolonged painful spiritual depression is a real possibility, is that it may be prolonged and it may last your entire lifetime. There is no guarantee that the darkness will lift quickly simply by turning to God. There is no guarantee that the darkness will lift at all in your lifetime simply by turning to God. If God has placed you in the pit, there is no guarantee he will take you out during your lifetime. We don't know if Heman ever experienced again the joy of the Lord in his lifetime. But we know from people like William Coper that saints do experience prolonged darkness that does not lift and lasts their entire life. That's the bad news. But this psalm does not leave us without hope. You see, after we look inward and see these realities and this conclusion that this may be a real experience for you or those you know, we look upward and we see one overarching reality that exists above all of this. It's at the very beginning of this psalm. This psalm begins deliberately with these words. 
O Lord, God of my salvation. O Lord, God of my salvation. Or O Yahweh, faithful God of the covenant, God of my salvation. The chief overarching reality that Heman saw and that we need to see is that God is his salvation. This is a chorus that reoccurs throughout this song. We see it in verse 1, right? O Lord, Yahweh, God of my salvation. We see it in verse 9, towards the bottom. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, which is again bringing back in that covenant name of God and everything attached to it. God is his salvation. And we see it again in verse 13. But I, O Lord, Yahweh, when you see Lord in capital, L-O-R-D, capital letters like that in your Bible, that's the ESV's way of indicating that that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He's bringing back in all through his crying, this chorus that God is his salvation. Notice he continues to cry out, even though he knows, even though he knows that God himself has put him in the depths of the pit. Right? Even though he knows that God himself has brought this darkness on him, for some reason he doesn't understand, what does he do? He cries out to Yahweh, God of his salvation. Even though the darkness will not lift, he continues to cry. Notice at the beginning, he says, I cry out day and night. And we see him do it three times in this psalm. He does not stop because God is still his salvation. And this is the reality that exists over everything. And do you know why this brings comfort? This brings comfort. Because if God is his salvation, then darkness is not the final word forever. If God is his salvation, then darkness is not the final word forever. One Puritan commentator puts it this way, and I think it's so striking. He says this, For nearly 3,000 years, the pious author of this ode has been singing a very different song before the throne of the eternal. And his eternity is but just begun. For 3,000 years, the darkness has been lifted from Heman. And for eternity going on, the darkness will still be lifted. Even if Heman never experienced the darkness lifting in his entire life, that was but a vapor. That was but a breath compared to what he's even already experienced in terms of joy and light. Because God is his salvation, darkness is not the final word for him forever. And friends, if the darkness is not lifting in your life, this is what you need to hear. God is still your salvation. When the darkness will not lift, God is still your salvation. This is the main point of this sermon, friends. When the darkness will not lift, God is still your salvation. And that is so vital because that means that for you, darkness is not the final word. For you, darkness will not exist forever. If God is your salvation, light will come. It may not come in this lifetime, but it will come. This is so important for us to know. This is so important for battling against the darkness. Because if in this life you have hope only, you're to be pitied. 
But we have hope beyond this life because Christ is raised and we are in him. When the darkness will not lift, God is your salvation. And because of this, because darkness is not the final word for you forever, you can learn to fight for joy even in this life. You can learn to fight the fight of faith now. I want to offer several suggestions for you. To fight the fight of faith now, you must first of all learn to distrust the certainties of your despair. Learn to distrust the certainties of your despair. Think about what William Cooper knew. He knew that God is faithful to keep his promise and that God saves forever those who are his. And yet he knew that it wasn't for him. Why is he so certain of that? What gives him the grounds to say that that is true? What gives you the grounds to say that when you conclude that because you are experiencing darkness that will not lift, that God has abandoned you? How do you know? You don't. You are certain because despair leads to certainty in our own minds, right? And your subjective experience of that darkness is very real and very painful. But you've got to learn to distrust that certainty. And you've got to learn to trust instead the certain word of God. We fight the subjective certainties that we experience in the midst of spiritual depression. How? With the absolute truths of the word of God. You've got to fight to believe promises like we read about in Isaiah 54. God says to his people, for a brief moment I deserted you. Put you in the pit. May have felt long to you, but for a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And you may say, it doesn't feel like a moment. And that's true, it doesn't. But in comparison with eternity, in comparison with everlasting love that the Father has for you, it will feel like a moment. One day. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, this light momentary affliction prepares us for an eternal weight of glory that's beyond comparison. And his affliction was neither light or momentary in this life. But when you view it in light of eternity, it becomes that. So learn to distrust the certainties of your despair. Learn to fight the subjective certainties with the absolute truth of God's word. And take heart that your troubles are from the hand of God. You may think that that doesn't sound very encouraging that God himself has put me in this pit. I don't think Heman would have found it very encouraging either. But it is because remember how God works in his people. It's through the crucible of trials. 1 Peter 1, James 1, Romans 5 all talk about this and more. That God himself is at work in his people in the midst of suffering, in the midst of darkness. God is at work, even if you can't see it. So take heart that your troubles are from his hand. Would you rather be in the pit in spite of him because he can't help you get out? I wouldn't. Strive also to see Jesus. We have a greater hope than Heman had. Heman had all of these promises as one of the people of Israel. But we have all of these promises come true in a person. 
We have greater hope than Heman. So what you need to do in the midst of your darkness, if the darkness will not lift, you need to keep pushing in to see Jesus. Not trying to bat away the darkness. If you stand outside in the middle of the night and try to push away the darkness, it doesn't work, does it? What needs to happen is light needs to shine in and Jesus Christ himself is the light. And so you need to strive to see him. You need to remember as you strive to see him that you have no other option. I think this is so important. I don't, I, this is what I would have said to William Coper, even though it may seem harsh. What's your better option? The disciples say to Jesus, when Jesus says, are you going to desert me too? After he, after he tells the whole crowd they have to eat his body and drink his blood and everybody goes away, he turns to his disciples and says, are you going to desert me too? And what does Peter say? Where else will we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. There is no other option than to seek Jesus. Because darkness is not the final word for you, you can fight for faith. But you don't fight alone. My last counsel to you, if you're experiencing this kind of darkness, is to find companions for the fight. The Puritan commentator I quoted earlier puts it just wonderfully. He says, if God by his providence shuts up, shuts us up so that we cannot come forth, then let his will be done. In other words, if God removes your companions, there's nothing you can do about it. But let us not voluntarily shut ourselves out from commerce with men simply because God has greatly afflicted us. We sometimes double our sorrows by nursing them in secret. We sit in our chambers until all nature is clad in drab or draped in black. This is unprofitable. When your heart is weighed down with darkness that will not lift, the last thing you want to do is be around other people. I get it. But he's saying, and I think he's right, don't remove yourself from other people. Because we are called together to be the body of Christ. So the reality is that even if you feel abandoned and alone, if you are in Christ, you are not. Because you have a body around you of people that want to carry that burden with you and that will. Find companions in the fight. I want to look outward for a minute and help us think about how to be those kind of companions. Because I recognize that it can be very hard to help someone who's experiencing this. Especially if you've never experienced it. How would you help a Christian who spoke Like this in Psalm 88. These realities that we see. Because we see this in our Bible. And we know that there are Christians who experience this. The reality is that you will. Or probably already do know. Someone who feels this way. That the darkness is unrelenting. That God has placed them in a pit. That they are being buried in despair. And that they have no hope. You need to know. How to help someone. The key to knowing how to help someone is in this overarching reality that we see in this psalm. The overarching reality for someone experiencing deep despair is that God is still their salvation. And friends, that's the key to helping too. God is still their salvation. And because that is true, what do they need? They need Jesus. 
They need Jesus, not in the sense of they don't know Jesus and they need to be introduced to him, but they need to be in the company of Christ. And how does that happen? That happens through you and I bringing Jesus to them. This is good news for those who want to help because you know what that means? You don't have to know what it's like to be able to help. Because what are you doing? You're bringing them Jesus, not you. Jesus knows what it's like. You don't have to know what to say in order to help. Because what are you doing? You're bringing them Jesus, not you. And Jesus knows perfectly what they need. So friends, bring them Jesus. Bring them Jesus by your presence. Jesus was with people. Jesus is God incarnated in the flesh. Why? Because presence is so important. Remember that part of human suffering and part of the suffering of those who experience deep darkness is they feel alone. They have been abandoned maybe by people. Sit in the ashes with them for a while. Bring them Jesus by being there as an image bearer of Christ who is just physically present with them. Bring them Jesus also by learning to listen like Jesus. He calls himself one who is gentle and lowly. When he calls people to come to them, he listens to them. You have to avoid assuming that this person is experiencing prolonged darkness simply because they lack enough faith. It's easy for us to assume that the problem with someone who is sitting in unrelenting darkness is that they lack faith. Was that Heman's case? Did he lack faith? No. Spiritual depression does not automatically indicate a lack of faith. And so we need to learn to listen. Not to try to figure out how to fix someone, but really listen. Be the ears of Jesus to them. Bring Jesus to others by praying with them. Especially when they can't pray. One of the symptoms of deep spiritual depression is similar to just regular old depression in that you can't do the things that you should do and want to do and need to do to get out of it. Right? Heman was zapped, uh, sapped of all of his strength. And so to say, tell him he just needs to pray more is not helpful. Come alongside them and pray with them and for them. Pray the Psalms. Pray Psalms like Psalm 88. If that expresses what's in their heart, read it together as a prayer to God. Pray, formulaic, or pray other psalms or other formulaic prayers. The Valley of Vision is extremely helpful for this kind of thing. It expresses deep sorrows and it expresses deep joys. Bring them Jesus by praying with them. Bring them Jesus by rehearsing Jesus' story together with them too. Read the Bible with them. Help them read Jesus' story. Speak often to them of Jesus' mercy and kindness and speak often of the hope of, of heaven. These are our hopes. The reality is that this darkness will not last forever. And you need to, as much as you can, remind them of that. And remind them why. But don't give them false hope saying, tomorrow is going to be a better day and the sun will rise. Give them the hope of heaven. Be Jesus. Bring them Jesus also. By being a genuine friend who loves them and doesn't give up. It is so easy for us to give up on helping those who are experiencing deep spiritual darkness. 
It is so easy because we try to help them and nothing seems to change. The change is too imperceptible. It's easy to give up because we want to figure out how to fix them. And sometimes there is nothing you can do besides sit with them in the ash. It's easy to give up because hurting people tend to pull back. And that can be an easy out for us and say, well, they just don't want to. They don't want to be together. It's easy for us to give up, I think, ultimately, because we think too little of God's ability to work through his word and his spirit through his people, right? You don't think, in other words, God can actually use you to help, but he will. So don't give up. William Coper had a friend, a famous pastor, you may have heard of him, named John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace and many other hymns. And for 33 years, John Newton came alongside William Coper and brought him Jesus consistently over and over and over and over again. And he only rarely saw glimmers of light. And overall, he never saw the darkness lift. And yet he was a faithful friend for 33 years. Can you be that kind of friend to someone who is in spiritual darkness? I think we must. I think that's our calling when we're called to bear one another's burdens as the people of God. Sojourners Church, the reality is that darkness may not lift in this lifetime, either for you or for those you're helping. Yet the reality is that God is still our salvation. And therefore, the future still holds light. This is the story of all of Scripture. God spoke in the beginning to do what? To bring light. And in Isaiah, he promised his people that were in darkness. What would they see? A great light would arise. And in John, we're told when Jesus came, what happened? Light came in to the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. And then we're told in 2 Corinthians, what happens when we see and behold that light? God, through his goodness and glory, shines in our hearts. So that we can see the light of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And what are we told ultimately about heaven in Revelation? We're told that it's going to be a city where there's no sun and no moon. Why? Because the glory of God itself will be its light. This heavenly city, in other words, that we are all headed towards in Christ Jesus is a city of light, filled with light. And so even if the darkness never lifts in this short momentary life that you and I have, We have an eternity with God in the city of light because it's the light of him, his presence. And that's great reason to hope. And that's great reason to strive together to never lose heart. But to cling forever to the hope we have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.